Well, I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City. So glad that all of you are here with us this morning. On the morning of Monday, October 2nd, 2006, a man named Charles Roberts walked into an Amish schoolhouse located a few miles from his house outside of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Up until that morning, Charles had been well-regarded and well-liked by his neighbors and his co-workers. He was married, had three young children. He was known as a doting father. To everyone who knew him, acquaintances and closest family, what he would do that morning was unimaginable. Charles walked into the schoolhouse carrying four guns, two knives, two cans of gunpowder, 600 rounds of ammunition, wood, bolts, wire, and a change of clothing. The first thing he did was order all of the boys and adults in the schoolhouse to leave. And one of the adults, as they were leaving, thought to call the police. Charles took the wood and the bolts and used them to barricade the doors so that no one could get in or out. He took the wire and he used it to tie the hands and legs of the 11 girls who remained in the schoolhouse. And then he took one of his guns and started to systematically shoot all 11 girls. Five of them died that day. Six of them were injured, many with life-altering injuries. Later that day, a man named Henry from the Amish community while some of the parents were still waiting to receive news from the authorities about the health and well-being of their children, Henry drove to the house of Charles's family, and he knocked on the door to Charles's family's house. Charles's family was reluctant. They'd seen the news. They knew what had happened. And they were reluctant to open the door. But they ultimately decided to open the door. And in that moment, Henry, serving as a spokesperson for the Amish community, said to Charles's family, you're not our enemy. We're so sorry for the loss of your son. We're grieving with you. Ten years later, the Washington Post wrote a piece on what happened that day. It was a reflection of what had happened that day and what had transpired in the ten years since. And in that piece, they wrote, The world watched in amazement as on the day of Charles's funeral, nearly 
30 Amish men and women, some of them the parents of the victims, came to the cemetery and formed a wall to block out media cameras. Parents whose daughters had died at the hand of their son approached Charles's family after the burial, mourning with them and offering their condolences. Several weeks after the shooting, one of the girls who had survived but had been seriously injured and was dealing with life-altering injuries was Charles's mother who became that young girl's primary caregiver. This girl's family opening their house and welcoming in a person who had easily could have become an enemy. It's an astonishing story of forgiveness, redemption, and renewal. It's staggering, almost. To me, that kind of forgiveness seems almost supernatural. It seems like a miracle that a person in a community could extend that kind of forgiveness. One of the members of the Amish community commented that as a practice, they forgive first, knowing it's what they're supposed to do, and then they spend the rest of their lives trying to live into that decision. That kind of forgiveness, that kind of miracle, it makes me want to move closer, to look deeper, to try and make sense of how this kind of thing can happen and what it means. We're continuing in our study of the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 11, but to talk about our passage, we need to talk a little bit about what Pastor Shack discussed last week. Last week, the passage we looked at started in Acts chapter 3 verse 1. It's a story of Peter and John walking to the temple in the afternoon to pray. And I love that Pastor Shaq pointed this out last week, that Peter and John weren't just on an afternoon walk, just trying to get their steps in, enjoying a beautiful Mediterranean day with no cares or concerns in the world. They were on their way to the temple to pray. And Jewish men understood that upholding religious obligation like prayer at the temple was more honoring to God than doing charity work with disabled people. But Peter and John spent years following Jesus. They'd seen firsthand the way that Jesus sees and moves towards people in need, even if it means making synagogue rulers wait. They've seen Jesus as he stares down a group of Pharisees and heals a lame person on the Sabbath, a direct violation of the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. And so Peter and John on this day, just like Jesus had taught them, see and move towards the disabled person. And then right there in that public space, a miracle occurs. The disabled person is healed and Luke tells us they get up, walk and jump around and even dance. And that's where I want to pick up the story starting with the last two verses of last week's passage and the first two verses of this week's passage. It starts in Acts chapter 3, verse 9. 
When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. Luke's describing the person who was healed. And they, the crowds, were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, the crowds, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? Luke then goes on to record Peter as he explains to the crowd that the miracle happened because of Jesus, that Jesus was the Messiah, that the Messiah had come to rescue all of them, and that they had participated in the murdering of their Messiah. And Peter concludes that speech by inviting them to recognize that Jesus is their Lord and Messiah, their Savior, and to place their faith into him. But it's almost like for Luke, that's not actually the focus of this story. Luke records Peter's sermon but absolutely nothing about the result or the impact. We have absolutely no idea if anyone in the crowd that day actually responded positively to Peter's sermon. We don't know if anyone in the crowds that day decided to join this early community of Christians. It's almost like that part of the story, the response is not what is important. And for our sake this morning, I'm not actually going to focus on Peter's speech because in form and structure and content, it's very similar to the speech that Peter gave on Pentecost where the Holy Spirit fell on all of the apostles and they went out into the streets speaking in foreign languages and crowds gathered and Peter then preached the gospel to them. If you're interested in that, you can go back a few weeks on our podcast and listen to that sermon. What I'm interested in today for our conversation are four words, wonder, amazement, astonished, and surprise. And just so that we're all on the same page about those four words, even though they are pretty self-explanatory, I want to make sure that we know what Luke intended those words to mean in his original writing. The word wonder in the original Greek means awe, that this miracle produced awe in the crowds who saw it. Amazement means bewildered. So they're bewildered by what they've seen. It's amazing to them, it's caused awe in them, and also this sense of curiosity. Astonished, in our English language, we actually miss how much, how much emphasis is being placed on this. It means utterly astonished. So it's like astonished, but at a 10. And the word surprise actually means marvel. So the crowds see what has happened and they respond with awe and curiosity. They're utterly astonished and they're marveling at what they see in front of them. Four words in four verses, all used to describe the crowd's reaction to the man's healing. The crowd see the man walking, jumping, and dancing in the temple courts. And their response is to be astonished. 
And what we see here is actually a pattern in the, gospel, in the book of Acts. There's a miracle that's performed by an apostle, and then a crowd gathers as a response to that miracle, and then one of the apostles begins to explain that miracle to the crowds. And in that explanation, the apostles always talk about Jesus. And in all of it, the apostles aren't passengers to the action. They're necessary parts of it. The Spirit works through the apostles, not apart from them. The Spirit empowers the apostles to perform the miracle. The miracle amazes and astonishes the people who were watching who then gather around the apostles seeking an explanation. And then it's the apostles who are always the ones who give an explanation of what has happened and how it all points back to Jesus. Church, miracles draw crowds. They don't make converts. Miracles draw crowds, but they don't make converts. Miracles create opportunities for the people of God to talk about Jesus. The miracles don't happen apart from the apostles. The miracles aren't understood apart from the apostles. And people don't come to faith apart from the apostles. The Spirit, who is alive and at work in and through the apostles, empowers them to live these lives that are astonishing to the crowds and onlookers in their lives. They live astonishing lives that create surprise and create wonder in people who are far from Jesus. I'm not sure our neighbors need more Christians who prioritize the law over love. I'm not sure our neighbors need more Christians more interested in religious obligation than people. Our neighbors don't need more Pharisees. We need Christians who will live astonishing lives today. And I don't mean astonishing in only a supernatural sense. I started by telling a story about a community of people who forgave someone who easily could have been made into an enemy. Peter and John in this story, they see a person in need and they stop what they're doing and move towards them. The earliest Christians, if we look back through church history, the earliest Christians elevated women and slaves to be equals, to be members of their community, something that onlookers in the Roman Empire would have noticed and thought, that's an astonishing way to live because they are upending the cultural order. The earliest Christians valued human life. Literally taking children who had been, and this is true, literally taking children who had been left out with the trash to die, and they take them home as their own and raise them. Everyone in the Roman Empire would have seen that and noticed there's something really different about these individuals. 
They cared for the poor and vulnerable in their, across the Roman Empire with such generosity and hospitality that Julian, a Roman emperor, actually complained about it. He's recorded in history as saying the Christians take better care of our poor than we do. Unless we forget the Roman Empire was the wealthiest, most powerful empire on the planet at the time. And in the second century, when an epidemic swept through the Roman Empire, Christians didn't leave. They stayed and they cared for the sick and risked their own lives and in the process of that saved thousands of lives physically and eternally. Every one of these acts in their time and in their culture was astonishing. Every one of these acts surprised people and caused them to wonder. Every one of these acts resulted in some people who were far from Jesus being led into a relationship with Jesus. We don't always need supernatural miracles to astonish people. I think that's something that some of us might need to hear and really hold on to. Because we've been taught in some ways that in order for us to really see God move, to really see neighbors and neighborhoods transformed, we need a miracle to almost fall from the sky and just happen. And yet what we see here in the book of Acts is that oftentimes the miracle, the thing that astonishes the crowd, comes through the regular everyday lives of the apostles. Just our lives lived with sacrificial generosity can astonish our neighbors. Just our lives lived with overflowing mercy and grace can transform neighborhoods. Just our lives lived in a way where we include people that oftentimes the church tells us we should exclude can transform people's perceptions of Christians in the church. Last school year, um, Allegheny Traditional Academy, it's a elementary school that's here in the north side. My, four of my kids attend it. Lots of kids who attend Garden City are a part of it. Last year, they were hosting a musical. And a few weeks before the musical was supposed to be performed, a partner organization backed out and with that basically said, like, the money that we had committed to helping with the production, we're not gonna be able to give it to you. And a few weeks before that performance, the principal of the school held this parent meeting and brought all the parents of all the kids who were in the musical together in one room. There's over 100 kids that were in that musical. And the principal explained to all of the parents that this partner backed out, it leaves this funding gap for them, and they weren't sure at all how they were gonna make that money up. They knew that they needed to go forward with the show because there were hundreds of kids who had already given months to it. But they were thinking about like, we're gonna have to start charging money for things we didn't think we were gonna charge money for and we're gonna have to charge more money for tickets. And I was at the parent meeting because Jay and Joel were in that play, in the musical. And the next morning I talked with Pastor Shaq and both of us agreed that we think being a good neighbor means stepping in when there's needs. And so we as a church 
stepped in and made a significant financial contribution to ensure that that musical would happen just as it was planned. And later that week, a faculty member from the school who was involved in the musical saw me at parent pickup waiting for Jay and Joel. And they came up to me and literally emotional asked, why would a church do this for us? And I answered, because we love what you're doing, because we think you're heroes, because we think God sees all of these kids and cares about them and is like proud of them for this musical that they're putting on. And I don't think God would want to see the musical not happen. And so because we love what you're doing and we love the kids and we think God would do this, we are going to, that's why. This Wednesday, um, just this past Wednesday, um, I know I don't look like I would do this, but I coach soccer. Um, so I'm one of Joel's soccer coaches. Um, and on Wednesday night, um, after practice, um, this young person who was on my team came over to where I was standing with a group of coaches and um, offered a cookie. She just had a bag of cookies and she said, I baked cookies for all of the coaches. Would you like one? Um, and all of us, except for the one with a gluten allergy, said yes. And I got that cookie. <laughs> but one of the coaches just asked the little girl, why did you make cookies for us? And in this perfect, like, eight-year-old, cute, little, shy way, she just kind of shrugged her shoulders and went, Jesus, and ran away. One of those coaches who I've known for years, um, who does not follow Jesus, um, looked at me like I had something to do with it. <laughs> I was like, I didn't, it's not me, sorry. And I kid you not, he just kind of looked and he's like, Jesus. I don't know about him. Makes good cookies, though. We don't always need supernatural miracles to astonish people. Just lives lived with sacrificial generosity can cause people to marvel. Just lives lived with mercy and grace can produce awe. I mean, this week at our neighborhood group, we were talking about the things that astonish people. And one of the women in our group said, just a person living a compelling life, just a person who's actually going to live what they say they believe, that would be enough for me. Church, we need Christians who will live astonishing lives today. Peter, the one who the Spirit worked this miracle through, healing the disabled person, Peter, the one who gives the speech proclaiming the gospel to the onlooking crowds. Later in his ministry, he wrote some letters that are recorded in the New Testament. And in his letter that we know as 1 Peter, he wrote this. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. 
Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Dear friends, that's you and me. Live as foreigners and exiles. We're to live our lives in our neighborhood knowing that it's not our true home knowing that it isn't our place of primary citizenship, that our beliefs and our convictions and our values are shaped by the kingdom of God where we claim our primary citizenship. Peter writes that we are to abstain from sinful desires because sin hurts us and it leads us and it leads others away from Jesus. He says to live such good lives among the pagans, to live astonishing lives in front of the crowds and onlookers in your life Because your good life could cause them to wonder. It could surprise them as they watch you. And then Peter says, so they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So they may see your astonishing lives so that they might draw close to you and ask for an explanation. And so you, like the apostles, can point them to Jesus. Church, our lives are intended to draw crowds. But our lives without words won't make converts. Our lives are intended to create opportunities for the gospel to be shared. Why'd you make those cookies? Jesus. Why'd your church give money to our school? Jesus. Why'd you forgive someone who should have been your enemy? Jesus. We need Christians who will live astonishing lives today. So what's stopping us? And I actually want to deal with that question. I'm not asking what's stopping us so that we can all say nothing. What's stopping us? For some of us, it's busyness. Our calendars and commitments don't leave much space for anything else. For some of us, it's fatigue. I don't know about you, but there are days where after work and caring for my five children, I don't have much extra energy to give to anybody else. For some of us, it could be a lack of financial capacity. We want to be generous, but we're struggling to pay our own bills. For others, it could be opportunity. That we just don't have relationships with people who aren't already following Jesus. For others, it could be a lack of empathy. If we're honest, some of us just don't care that much about the people in our neighborhoods. And we don't care that much about the people who are far from Jesus. For others, it can be fear. We're just scared to talk openly about Jesus because we've been conditioned to believe that it's unloving to talk about our faith with non-Christians. Even though, according to Barna, a leading research organization on faith and culture reports that 62% of non-Christians are open to having spiritual conversations with friends who are Christians. 
62% of non-Christians are open to having spiritual conversations with their friends who are Christians on two conditions, they say. One, their Christian friends will listen to their story without judgment. And two, their Christian friends will not force them to make a decision at the end of the conversation. Literally listening well to our non-Christian friends can be astonishing. So, this week, knowing all the realities that can stop us from leading astonishing lives, what is one thing you can do? One thing that you can do that might astonish the onlookers in your life. I'm not thinking grand gesture. If we're being really honest with each other, I'm setting the bar low. What's one thing you can do? Is it inviting a coworker that you've never had lunch with before to go out to lunch with you this week? You're gonna go anyways. Maybe invite someone new. Is it inviting a neighbor just to go on a walk with you? Is it planning a cookout and inviting your neighbors to it? Is it texting someone and just grabbing a beer with them and sitting and listening to them? Is it offering a ride to someone who needs it? Is it meeting a financial need of a person in your life? What's one thing that you can do this week, church? Because we need Christians who will live astonishing lives today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we could have this opportunity. Would you please in this moment just settle your words and your truth into our hearts? Father, what you would have for us in this moment, would you settle it into our hearts? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.